Can I get an amen? We're not religious, but. That's okay. <laughs> whatever. That means we can say whatever we want. Amen. <laughs> this is the second half of a conversation about cultural competence versus cultural humility. We talk about difficulties with practicing cultural humility in our everyday conversations and in the clinical setting, a potential flaw with cultural humility, and different ways to develop cultural humility as an individual and in the workplace. Enjoy. You want to get into the benefits of cultural humility. Let's. First off, it takes the burden off of the person doing the inquiry. You don't have to be a subject matter expert on another culture that you're not part of. It encourages communication between the patient and the provider so they can tell them how much or how little does my culture impact whatever issue I'm having. And the provider just listening. Yeah, rather than assuming. Exactly. It's so interesting the way that we... <laughs> Live certain experiences the way that we have understandings of certain like academic terms as lay people and then the way that things are talked about in the classroom. So I don't know. Let, let's take something like critical race theory, for instance. Right. Critical race theory describes an experience that lots of people of racial identities have had and the power imbalances. And there's a way that it's lived. And then there is a way that it is talked about in academic literature. And sometimes it seems like it's not the same thing. <laughs> because I think when you're talking about a concept without the human aspect, yes, people understand it in a different way. So mm -hmm. that matters when you have a human being looking at you saying, I am the result of X, Y, Z. I benefit from critical race theory and this is how or I whatever. It is one thing to humanize a concept, and then there's another thing when you're just looking at a concept as a collection of abstract thoughts and results. You know what I mean? Right. It's interesting to assess this perspective from a person who occupies several different marginalized identities. There's the classroom, and then there is still social pressure, right? Mm -hmm. There is this social pressure to be aware. People want to talk about it as like being woke, which whatever, I'm not. Please don't. <sighs> But I think that the people who are resisting it don't understand the type of awareness that we as marginalized people want you to have. And that is because they hear a term like LGBTQ plus community and then they go off about calling us the alphabet community and why does there need to be all of this and what instead of just asking a question uh, recently within the past year, I'm going to say. I had somebody on my Facebook friends list and they posted on Facebook that they identify as non-binary. There was a bunch of congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And somebody commented, I truly want to understand what this means if there is anybody on this thread willing to have that conversation. And to me, that is cultural humility. Not, I don't understand why you just can't be a man or a woman. Yes, yeah, so just ask what it means to them then. Why do you need to go off and have a tizzy? Listen, I don't understand what it means to be non-binary. I don't need to understand that. I can yeah. ask a person what it means to them. And I can understand why it's important that when I say I identify as such and such, I need you to operate with that in mind. It's important for the identity that I have not to be erased and absorbed into the rest of culture and being treated the same way you would treat everybody else when you cannot do that to me. I don't function the same way everybody else does. I can identify with that. 
And I think cultural humility encourages people to make statements like that person said on that thread. And also the thing I liked about that person was they didn't say to that creator of the post. They said, if there is anyone on this thread willing to have that conversation, I would like to understand. Encourage people to be comfortable with asking questions because what we have right now is there's a bunch of people talking about how they're afraid. They're afraid to ask questions. They're afraid to say something wrong. They're afraid to be offensive. And you don't have to be afraid when you realize that what really needs to happen is you need to give people the opportunity to talk about their experiences. And I will say as a person who is minoritized and marginalized in several senses of that word, it is a struggle on both ends, whether you're in the dominant group or not. Because what has happened is for so long, I have said, hey, this is my experience. And then people go, go sit down. No, no. And so now I don't want to talk to you about my experience. Yeah, that's where I was. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to talk to you because there is a history of dismissal and mistreatment. So listen, there is work to do from both angles when it comes to cultural humility, when it comes to encouraging patients or people to talk about their experience and encouraging providers to ask questions and ask people, the public, to inform them about their experience about how culture plays a role or whether it even does in the first place. I'm about to contradict myself, kind of. This is what this podcast is about. We're breaking it down and exploring our understandings and let's go. To the point of your friend that came out as a non-binary person and to the person that responded, I'm really interested if anyone would be willing. I think that's great. But I'm of two minds. This is kind of going back to what we're talking about and like the human aspect of learning about a concept. It's not that person or any person who was part of the LGBTQIA plus community to educate people. It's not what? It's not their responsibility to educate others. I've had someone recently apologize to me because they were sort of asking me all these questions about Black culture and things like that. We're friends. So I was like, okay, I answered this person. But it put me in a very uncomfortable situation. I won't lie. And this person did come out and they were like, hey, I realized that I was basically using you to get all of my questions out where I could have gone and done my own research. And that was yes, you know, a big push. You can hop on YouTube and you can. the gift of the having gift all of- these different <laughs> yes. influencers and creators oh and YouTubers. God. I mean, there's so many folks. And that is not divorcing the human from the concept. It makes it even easier because you don't know this person. So you can see what this person, they have given freely of their time, of their energy, because let's be 100. If it's anything that's not plain Jane, white American, it's going to get some pushback. Yes. So you know they catch a heat in the comment section. So to me, every time I hear that, I do think, yes, okay, cool. You're showing cultural humility by saying, hey, I this is something I don't have familiarity with, but I'm interested in learning. And That's cool. That's great. But asking people to do that emotional labor, it's not okay. Okay. So, wow, you have just, I like that you brought this up. I love that you are my co-host, man. (laughs) Because with you having just said that, I don't want to say it helps me see that there's a flaw with cultural humility, which whatever, like there's going to be flaws with all these different things, right? Because at the end of the day, the fact that we need terms to tell people to treat people like people is really messed up. Okay. (laughs) But here we are having a podcast episode about it. We have a podcast because of this. We have a podcast because of this (laughs) podcast, period. 
But that can be a flaw with cultural humility, especially when we talk about it. Uh, we're going to get into cultural humility in the workplace. You know, when you talk about cultural humility in the provider client setting, that's very different from cultural yeah. humility as I exemplified with the non-binary person coming out on Facebook. I agree with that. That's different. And so maybe this is where cultural humility, people need to be very careful about extracting this from the clinician client setting because there is a right way and a wrong way to do this. And with the clinician and the client, though, I mean, I still think there does need to be encouragement and education on both ends because, like I said, yes. there's a history of dismissal and being dismissed that are like now y'all are telling us to come together. <laughs> and while you have been worried or your people in your group have been worried about, well, we got to learn about another thing, we and my group have been sitting back and be like, well, I got to figure out how to explain this to them so that they don't lose their shit mm -hmm. over me saying something like pronouns. Pronouns. Yikes. Or there's going to be some tiptoeing and people feeling like they're walking on ice from both sides. That's what people don't understand. On the side that does get extra defensive, that does all the dismissing, they don't understand our perspective. And cultural humility encourages people to have a sensitivity to that. Maybe, you know, it wasn't really brought up in the text that we read, the history of being dismissed and all of that. So no. hmm, I guess I kind of brought it up earlier when I was talking about medical literacy in regards to like Native American tribes or something. Right. Because sometimes not acknowledging the difference in beliefs is a type of dismissal. It says that it's not there. It says that we don't need to meet you halfway or 25 75 or whatever. So we found articles that cover these concepts in the broadest sense of these terms. And here we are as individuals breaking this down and trying to relate to it and pointing out the flaws and beauties of these concepts. I mean, I think that cultural humility is a step in the right direction with encouraging people to communicate openly about differences rather than just say we can't talk about it, which is what what a bunch of people want to do this. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't talk about it. Don't have it in the classroom. Don't teach your kids about it. And we cannot have that. We need to encourage people to communicate openly, be willing to learn and learn and not make somebody else's experience about you. Yeah. Stop doing this. Stop centering yourself and other people's experiences. One of the benefits that was in this article was that the idea of cultural competence, which we already said can lead to stereotyping, gives people a false sense of security. And of course, cultural humility removes that. Cultural humility says you have implicit biases. It's not good or evil. It just is. We are humans. We are pattern seeking creatures. We do it in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those survival instincts, they extend into areas of our lives in which it's irrational. And so we have to check ourselves. Cultural humility says, check yourself. You don't know. Don't think that you know. Assume that you don't. Just ask. Cultural confidence says, bring these facts with you to the session, right? Like you get your book learning done and now you know. And <laughs> no, you do not. So it, it, this is a benefit of cultural humility. It says, don't even incorporate book learning. Just ask the people. If you remember nothing else, you will remember that. Okay, why don't we get into the criteria now? The criteria of cultural humility. These are three criteria necessary for developing cultural humility. Yes. First is lifelong commitment to self-evaluation and self-critique. Checking your implicit biases, acknowledging that you have them, and then putting them aside to hear what the other person has to say. And then like seeking out those opportunities, I guess, too, right? 
mm-hmm. which again is something that we have to be careful with. And I think people need to learn how to criticize and evaluate themselves, their own behaviors and thoughts without thinking it's good or bad. Right. A lot of people are afraid of being called out. And instead, you need to take it head on. If somebody calls you out, you need to do some self-reflection rather than just saying, I'm not that. I don't think that way. It is a knee-jerk response that we all need to get rid of. Mm-hmm. When you have a commitment to critiquing yourself, if somebody calls you out for doing X, I don't know, being transphobic or racially insensitive, yeah, you need to do some self-reflection and think about, well, why did they say that? And you can ask a person why they said that, right? If somebody is openly calling you out, to me, that's an invitation to have a conversation. Sorry, I am saying that. You might not feel that way, Olivia. And the person who called them out can say, uh, no, you need to Google this. Here's a YouTube link. Go look at this. People can do that. But I do think if you have stepped up to confront someone, have a conversation. It's going to be uncomfortable for everybody in that conversation. If I'm calling you out for being racially insensitive, I'm not comfortable either. You've made me uncomfortable. There's discomfort from both ends there. And as I'm going to get into, self-reflection by yourself is very difficult. We are not good at that. Kind of like trying to... Look in a mirror in the dark. More like trying to do surgery on yourself. I say it depends. If somebody calls you out for saying something that's transphobic, for example, but that person's not trans themselves. Because a lot of times what I have found is that people hear things and they were like, that was hurtful when it was said to me. So I'm going to say it to someone else. And they aren't understanding the concept. So honestly, I say take that with a grain of salt. But yes, if somebody is calling you out now, if they're part of that community and they're telling you, hey, bruh, sis, no, that's one thing. But if they're not part of that community, I don't have nothing to really say to you because how do I know that you know what you're talking about? But can we eliminate all of our implicit biases? I don't think so. We can eliminate some and then get more as life just goes on. <laughs> I would like to think we would, but let's be honest, I don't know if yeah. that's possible. But if you feel a certain way, for example, if you feel uncomfortable around double amputees, that is an implicit bias. Sit back and ask yourself, why do I feel uncomfortable? What's making me uncomfortable? That's a very hit you over the head, obvious example, but like, Anything in that frame, if it's like, oh, I feel uncomfortable around around blind people, they don't know what to say to us. Well, why is that? That's not a problem for me to fix. That's an implicit bias that you have against blind people because you feel some sort of uncomfortability. Sit with that and ask yourself Yeah, why, why do you feel like you can't communicate with us? But, right. I, but I do think it's going to take someone to phrase it differently, right? It's going to take somebody to pull you out of your own head because you can have the skill of critiquing yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is a skill, I will say, that needs to be practiced. I think I am a lot better at it because I I have a degree in philosophy (laughs) Um, and I took logic courses where we actually had to pull our own beliefs apart. That was a struggle, but (laughs) it was a good exercise. It's something that we need to improve our internal dialogue. And at first, that is going to require having external dialogues. After you hear somebody say, well, why does that make you uncomfortable? You start asking yourself that after you've heard that enough times. Mm -hmm. Why, Why do I have an issue communicating with blind people? Why do I have a visceral reaction when I see double amputees? Why do I perform X behavior whenever I see an Arab person? Whatever, right? Like, you have to ask yourself that and get comfortable with that internal exploration. And I think it's good to develop friendships where you can have these conversations. Like, me and Rochelle have some really 
in-depth conversations, right? Rochelle has identities I don't have and vice versa. Like me being a black woman and Rochelle going through these classes and Rochelle is like, I want you to listen to this. And Rochelle will talk about the things that this textbook said about black people. Me and Rochelle have the type of relationship where Rochelle can come to me with that stuff and I'm not, I'm not going to lose my mind or be like, listen, I don't have the emotional bandwidth for that. I mean, which whatever, if I said it, Rochelle would respect it. Typically I don't, right? I am the type of person, I like diving into this. I don't mind that Rochelle is white and I'm black and we can get into it. And it doesn't mean that we agree on everything that the other person says. There are times that we don't even agree, but it's still a healthy disagreement. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have friendships where you can have those. That is not always possible. That is extremely difficult. I think, though, people should have some more friendships like this, um, where we can talk about the things that make us uncomfortable and no one feels obligated or feels like they're necessarily doing emotional labor. Because it's not just me talking about my experience as a black person and the other person sitting back and listening and absorbing and not really putting any energy into the conversation. And so it just feels like I'm a presenter now instead of your friend. Mm -hmm. That's not good. In some ways, people need to cultivate these types of friendships. We're actually going to get into how you can do it, believe it or not. Anyway, Olivia, go on with the other criteria. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's <laughs> fine. All that needed to be said. So the second criteria for developing cultural humility is a desire to fix power imbalances. Is that possible? I don't think so. <laughs> it's, well, you can try. You can try to stabilize it. People love to scream and shout that humans are hierarchical by nature. And we are. We, are, we don't have to be, but... Where we are in modern human history, we have cultivated a planet where we can't really do without hierarchy. Oh, it's the way we've structured societies. Yes, I think so. But you can, to the best of your ability, especially if you're a person in the dominant culture, take us. We are in the dominant female culture, right? We are cisgendered women. And because of that, we have to speak up and hold down our trans sisters because in the arena of gender, we have a more dominant position. And so we have to advocate for that. Well, that does that mean that people are going to just accept all trans women and everything's going to be all kumbaya? No, but we can use our position to advocate on behalf of fight on behalf of our trans sisters you know what i mean yes i agree will that get rid of the power imbalance no would it empower the people that need it yeah and i think that's more achievable this is a desire to fix the power imbalances so you can have that desire and then put action into that desire by standing up for the people if you do happen to be in the predominant group and fighting for those who are not. Our last one is aspiring to develop partnerships with people and groups who advocate for others. Taking that deliberate step to reach out to groups you know are accomplices. Fuck these allies. We've graduated past allyship. That's the on-ramp or like the gateway to accomplish it. But get with these groups who are stirring the pot and flipping tables, who are advocating for other people. So you can, in fact, practice and foster cultural humility in your interactions. Yeah, I agree with that. Whenever people ask, well, what can I do? Listen, man, 
me as a black person, I'm not aware of all the organizations of white people who actually are accomplices, but they're out there. And as much as people have said, well, just telling somebody to get on Google is not helpful. Sometimes that's all we got because I don't know, just like you don't know. I mean, there's some black people who are activists and advocates and they can tell you exactly where to go. I am not one of them. I am speaking to lay people through this podcast and some of the other things that I do in my community. But like you white person from Florida, I got to tell you to get on Google and I got to tell you to Google organizations that advocate for black LGBTQ youth or whatever, whatever your passion is, whatever your passion is, because they are there. And you can do it. You in Florida, you can find the people, you in Texas, you can find the people who are advocating for trans people despite all these bills being passed. There mm-hmm. are people doing it and you can get with them. But yes, I do need you to get on Google because I don't I know. Need you to get on Google because I'm not the holder of all knowledge on this topic. What I'm going to talk about next is how to develop cultural humility. This is in the workplace. The workplace is a good start. A professional setting, I think, is a good start because it's easier to, I guess it depends on your workplace. I was going to say, it's easier to instill neutrality there, but you know what? Mm, Um, Not at mine. That's not true. And Maybe 20 years ago, but not now. No, 20 years in the future. (laughs) I think you're being optimistic. (laughs) Developing cultural humility in the workplace leads to an increased sense of belonging. Improved psychological safety. I'm going to say that's up there with emotional safety. Mm-hmm. Smoother collaboration and teamwork. Higher employee well-being and mental health. Better communication. Reduced interpersonal conflict. Yeah. This sounds great. Well, they just said that's what it leads to. You got to get cultural humility in there somehow in the first place, though. So here's some ways to do it. All right. Create opportunities for your team to get to know each other. As an introvert, I take issue with that. (laughs) There's a lot of different ways to do that, though, as another introvert. Are we talking like anonymous surveys? Because I can do an anonymous survey. But if you're talking about let's physically get together, I have a problem. I don't want to do that. Yeah, and I'm going to say that you need to work on that. (laughs) So this says, identify the common ground between individuals. Creating social events is a great way to help a team get to see each other as people. And knowledge helps to reduce stereotype bias. I understand your struggle as an extra any introvert, because this says social events. And yes. I want you to recognize that this is one way to build cultural humility. There needs to be approaches for everybody. There's a lot of different ways to do this. So mm-hmm. I am on the idea committee at my job. And actually, mm-hmm. we are coming up with approaches to get people to learn about each other and see each other as people. Some of it involves getting clips of people answering different questions, like video clips, editing that together as a video, and then sending that out to the organization. And um, you don't necessarily have to talk to anybody, but you get to recognize the way that people see the world around them, the different understandings that people have. And sometimes it can help you see how much more in common you have with other people. It might help you to see how different you are from somebody else. That's fine, too. But Stuff like that is important. You know, people did a lot of stuff like this during the height of the pandemic. Lots of video interactions. And some of it was just sending out videos that you can interact with individually. And some of it was just we all get together on a video call. Um, I think both of those have their place. So that's just one way to put a different spin on that. The second way to build cultural humility is invest in coaching. Lots of places are doing this. My workplace has done this. 
A core part of developing cultural humility is developing self-awareness, like we talked about earlier. And as I said, self-awareness is difficult to work on by yourself. And the cool thing about bringing a coach or a consultant is that can strengthen your reflective skills by providing opportunities to practice conversations and challenge your assumptions. I think that's interesting. I mean, when I did the, I don't even know what my workplace called it, and they brought on a consultant from a company. She was doing the types of things that I was talking about earlier that I did in my logic class in college. Write down some assumptions you have. Write down biases that you've overcome. This leads to interesting conversations, right? Because I'm sitting in there and then somebody admitted they had biases surrounding blind people, right? Like when I first started there, they openly shared that they were uneasy about having a blind person in the workplace and the specific thing that we do, which is fine. That's not surprising. (laughs) I'm not surprised by that at all. And I'm not hurt by it either. But it's important to have these conversations. And it's important to even have an instance like that where someone can say, I was uneasy around you. Now, everybody can't do that, right? This person is my friend. That's most likely why they were even comfortable saying that. I understand that. It's just interesting to have everybody in a little circle. It was like a group of 10 people or whatever it was. We're all going to talk about our biases. And there will be people who say they don't have any. You, you will always have those people. That's, that's fine. And then there are some exercises where people will get defensive. There was an exercise where they had you write down your top 10 or 15 people in your inner friend circle. And then you had to write down the race and gender of all of those people. There were other aspects of their identity, like how many of these people are the same race as you, the same gender as you, the same religion, whatever, like that type of stuff, not writing down their specific race or whatever. Uh And there was a white lady in the thing who got defensive. And she's like, I can't help that everybody has things in common and all my inner friends. And another woman, uh, she's multicultural, and she came off mute and she was like, that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is not to make you feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Ooh, white people! It's mm-hmm. not to make you feel guilty. It's just to bring it to your attention. It is bringing to your attention how similar the people in your inner circle are to you. And this is why I brought up earlier how important it is to try to build friendships and to seek out friendships where you can have these different healthy dialogues and healthy conflict and, and healthy conversations about your differences and how we can still function together with our differences in mind and not be oppressive or dismissive. When I say seek people out, I feel like people aren't even doing that right. What I really mean is when you happen to start having a conversation with somebody, whether it's at work or whatever, and you notice they look very different from you or they have a lifestyle that's incredibly different from yours, this is an opportunity to cultivate a friendship rather than just leave it as an acquaintanceship or as a surface level relationship. You can develop a a relationship deeper than that. And this is where the previous step comes in regarding identifying your common ground. So those opportunities need to be capitalized on. And it's not an opportunity to ask people questions and grill them about how different their life is from yours. But just listen to the stories that they tell. Listen to the experiences that they have. If you talk to somebody long enough, they will tell you things that you might not have ever even thought to ask about. And it is so different from the existence that you live, but you learned about it because you cultivated a friendship with that person. I say, you know, you can even practice cultural humility by incorporating authors from different genres if you are a reader, because not everybody reads. It's something I don't comprehend, but that's fine. Everyone's not like me. I'm not a reader. That's okay. You're still my friend. (laughs) You're right. Sometimes people go after friendships (laughs) 
I knew someone was like, I need an Asian friend. Yeah, Maybe see, not. thank you. No, <laughs> you can't do, do this. Nah. Don't do that. Don't do it at all. The best ones happen organically. Yes. And that means something different now than it did before, right? Like, you know, now if you meet people, for example, I've met some really cool people via social media who I then talked to in real life. And uh, we actually ended up being really cool. So if you cultivate friendships that way, that's cool. But where I was originally going, incorporate reading books from other genres by authors of different backgrounds than you. There was this book that I read called, it was an autobiography, and the book was called like My Father's Honor. And it was about a woman living, I believe she was Pakistani, or is, she's still alive. And she was just talking about her culture. And I'm like, this is nothing I've ever heard of before. Telling it from her perspective, because a Western ideology, when it comes to uh, Middle Eastern and South Asian cultures, it's negative. Reading her book and her words and her talking about her culture, I learned so much. And I was like, huh, I never knew that. It broadened my horizon. So I think that's another thing that can be done. I love that suggestion. Number three, an approach for building cultural humility is let other people lead the conversation. And you may find that culture has no effect on a particular circumstance or may impact it in an unexpected way. Yes. For example, I'm still living in my childhood home. It's not a cultural thing. It's not a Black American thing. It's not an American thing for me to be the age that I am still living in my family home. But it is based on economics and the cost of living and so on and so forth and where we live and what I deem to be acceptable. Could I potentially move out? Sure. But would I be dodging bullets? Very much <laughs> if I try to move in a place of my price range. You can't say your biggest issue is being black or your biggest issue is being blind. No, actually, neither one of those are my issues right now. <laughs> the issue is the economy that's affecting all of us, but in different ways. So number four is use what you learn for good, not ego. Yes. And yes. um, yeah, this is massively important. I think it's important. Oh, my God. To attain this, obtain this knowledge and not sit on it. Go educate other people. Go help other people. We talked about earlier seeking out advocacy groups and opportunities to seek accompliceship in helping marginalized, minoritized groups, whoever, and not just sitting on the knowledge that you have or using your awareness as a flex, like some oh people God. like to do. Like, don't do this. Just stop that. Do some real shit with it. Do some real shit. It is not a flex. Please don't become those people. Oh, I think well, of people have, as people. Or I have insert marginalized group here. Friends, children. Yes. Don't do that. Or I spoke to a Vietnamese person and they told me this. So now you are a subject matter expert. You are not. That was that person's situation and they told you their thing. Or the white people who think they got it down because they go to Africa every year. That one really takes me or oh, they can speak the language. And so they are so integrated and they know you're still not mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. cease and desist. Or the white people who grew up in the hood. Oh, oh my God. Nope. I'm blacker than you are. No, you're not. You won't ever be. Oh, wow. I've never heard that. Oh, I have heard I the have. white people who say they understand what I'm dealing with because they grew up in the hood. Like I grew up in the fucking hood. 
Shit, I didn't, but you'll still never have what a better What the fuck does that even imply? Ooh, that's almost a whole other episode. Yeah, you grew up white in the hood. I can't tell you shit about being white in the hood. You are a subject matter expert. That is your lived experience. But you can't be like, well, I grew up next to everybody in, on my street was black. So I understand what it's like being. No, you don't. No, you, no, don't. you do not. You understand. You can recognize. I need people to start using that word more. You can <sighs> recognize yeah. the struggle. Right. You I, recognize I, I it. That. You saw it a lot. You were exposed to a lot. I don't know if you can truly understand it. You didn't live it. You did not live it. You were paralleling it, but you weren't living the situation. So can no, you say no. you're familiar? I was about to say that. Yeah, that's another word too. Like I'm familiar with I'm familiar. these experiences. Yeah. I witnessed XYZ. Because yeah. you can you can bear witness to people's issues and not understand them personally. I've bared witness to pregnant people giving birth. Not actually, because I've never been in the room, but I've seen them pregnant and then I've seen them not pregnant. We've had conversations, but I can't be like, yeah, so I know what it's like to give birth. No, I don't. No, I do not. (laughs) I love this example. We've got to be careful with our words because they imply things that we don't, maybe we don't mean them to imply or we just are using the incorrect verbiage. And (laughs) that's probably more what it is and the last way to build cultural humility understand the limitations of competence Mm -hmm. this interestingly brought up several times that the idea of cultural competence implies a finite learning point i agree with that it says this is a static reductive approach to diversity Mm -hmm. and it does not bridge the gap to inclusion Because people change. Culture changes over time. Like black personhood has changed over time. Womanhood has changed over time. And so it's so much easier to not even care about arming yourself with a certain set of knowledge on what it's like to live in a certain community when you can just listen and absorb and use that information to start criticizing and challenging your own beliefs and then also helping other people change their own minds. That's so important. It's interesting because it talks about in this article how this thought process has created a unique problem for human resource professionals. How do I address belonging when I'm not supposed to talk about our differences? I think that's a problem. Listen, the fact that people are not comfortable talking about differences is a problem. Yes. Because me saying that we're different is not saying we don't have anything in common or that we disagree on everything. This is an opportunity to celebrate our differences and embrace them and acknowledge them is another thing too, right? And make yes. sure that other people don't erase and dismiss how there other people are different. Ooh, we got to work on that. Acknowledging differences is not inherently a negative thing. The dominant culture has made it so that when yes. people say different, it automatically has a negative connotation and it shouldn't. I think it's always been that way. So I don't know that it can be fixed, but acknowledging differences, for example, between say you and I worked at the same place, we're both blind and say there we're the only two blind people. That's an obvious difference. And so there are going to be things that you and I would do differently. And even between the two of us, even if I was total or you have partial sight, whatever the case may be, 
it doesn't matter because even between two people of the same culture or whatever, they'll do things a little bit differently. And that's fine. That's not inherently a bad thing. And I think that's where the issue has come into play where they're like, well, we can't talk about people being different because that's somehow negative. No, it's not. Well, and I think this is a good example too. like take something like a diet. People can have wars and conflicts and all these different issues over diets and how people should or should not eat. But that is not necessarily the purpose of people sharing their differences in the way that they eat or celebrating it. I think we've had a couple events in my workplace where there were different dietary options or like we talked about a common dish at our family's tables during the holidays or something. I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of several different things. But it's just an opportunity to celebrate it and learn. You never know when you're going to use that knowledge. I think that's the one thing to keep in mind with diet. So like you and I have two different diets. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that I never thought anything of it and I never had to until you came here. <laughs> and now I have a person who eats very, I don't want to say very differently, but there's a food group that I eat that you don't. Mm -hmm. And then I'm cooking for us. And I'm just like, oh, I have to be cognizant and like have things in different pans and have different spatulas and things like that. It wasn't anything that mattered until it did. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I had that knowledge ahead of time. I don't even remember you saying anything about it to me before you got here. Like, hey, just remember, this is my diet, right? Like, you've already told me about your diet in the past. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things that when you were here, I think I was talking to you and I was like, I keep reminding myself to use the other spatula. And you were like, I'm glad that you're doing that. But it's something that you didn't even have to say to me. Right. No, I didn't. That's one of those things where the difference in our diets is not bad. It's one of those things that just is. And it's good for us to have knowledge about things like that, because there might be a time where it is going to matter. And I think this is another issue we encounter with like diversity and inclusion, where people think that this shit is irrelevant. It doesn't matter that people are different. Like we're all just people. You know, what difference does it make? And no, maybe right now in this moment where we're having this meeting about the deadline that we have to hit. No, it doesn't matter. Of course not. But oh. when we are having a discussion about holiday celebrations, when we are right. having a discussion about family medical leave, you know, whatever the case is, our fucking differences do matter then. They matter. At the end of the day, there's so much work to do to get to people accepting differences as just differences and not something that needs to be eliminated or criticized or anything of that nature. Or feel guilty or freaking triggered or attacked. So like, <laughs> because you brought this up, I feel. And so they feel the need to lash out like this situation doesn't even call for that. Why are you so deep in your feelings about something that you never had to be? recognizing differences there's nothing wrong with it and people need to do more of that and just accept differences as not good or bad just a thing this is intersectional insights if you like our content leave us a rating or review to help the podcast check us out on instagram twitter and facebook and if you have any comments questions or topic suggestions you can email us i squared i s q u a r e d hello at gmail.com Thank you so much for listening.